Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session six on the War of the Jewels. And tonight we should be getting, uh, I hope, all the way to the end of the Grey Annals. Um, <clears throat> and maybe even to the end of Christopher's end notes on the Grey Annals. Um, which is important because uh, he, did, he does some very interesting contemplations on the question, both of the uh, nature of the annals and also um, on the uh, relationship between the annals and the other narratives that Tolkien was writing, which doesn't wholly answer the question by itself of uh, sort of their place in the Silmarillion, the Silmarillion of Tolkien's imagination. Um, but um, but it, it, it gives us quite a bit, so I'm excited to get there. But first, the end of... Um, the end of the annals. So, all right. Um, one of the things that we notice in the end of the annals, we were looking at the beginning of the Turin story, well, the first half of the Turin story, really last time. Um, the way in which the story of Tour keeps interrupting the story of Turin is interesting, right? That he is telling these stories in, uh, within the annals in this sort of interleaved... What, inter, in, how do you... What is the... If one interleaves things, <laughs> I almost said he interleft them, but that's not, that's the wrong kind of leave, isn't it? Anyway, um, uh, <laughs> whatever, interwoven, let's go with that. Sayonara, that, that sounds more sensible. Um, he's interweaving them, as of course you'd have to do if you're writing an annal, right? And so one of the things, this is one of the places where although, you know, the narrative has become very, very full... And so, therefore, one would think that much of the benefit of writing um, in annal form, or writing, to use the word that Christopher invents later on, analytically, um, one of the goals, one of, or not, not goals, one of the benefits of writing analytically is brevity, right? But, but like, why write briefly? So that you can see how everything fits together. By putting everything year by year, it shows you not just like, you're not just telling a particular story. You're showing the overall story and how it fits in. So this fits, of course, very well. And, you know, the way that we are brought in, brought to see how the tour story fits in. Also, it's equally clear that how much more of a focus uh, Tolkien was giving to the Turin story than the tour story, right? Which are happening in parallel. But... Um, Tour gets way less time on stage uh, than Turin does uh, during the course of this uh, of this section here. But okay, uh, here Tour, son of Huor, met Bronwe of the Noldor at the mouths of Sirion, and they began a journey northward along the great river. But as they dwelt in Nantethrin and delayed because of the peace and beauty of that country in the spring, Omo himself came up Sirion and appeared to Tour. And the yearning for the great sea was ever after in his heart. But now at Olmo's command he went up Syrian, and by the power that Olmo set upon them, Tuor and Bronwe found the guarded entrance to Gondolin. There Tuor was brought before King Turgon, and spake the words that Olmo had set in his mouth, bidding him depart and abandon the fair and mighty city that he had built, and go down to the sea. But Turgon would not listen to this counsel, and Meglin, later changed to Glindur, his sister son, spoke against Tuor. But Tuor was held in honor in Gondolin for his kindred's sake. 
Okay. So, of course, one of the primary differences that we see here, and this is still, this has been for some time, the idea of Turin going to the sea by Nevrast has not seemed to have come in yet. Um, that tour went down south. On the one hand, that might seem a little bit strange, right? Like, why does he go all the way lengthwise down the middle of the continent, right, to get down towards the ocean and have his sea longing inspired by meeting somebody in a river, you know, still in the middle of the continent, basically. Um, that seems a little bit strange if we think from the perspective of the later Turin story, right, of him coming and meeting old Mo rising up out of the waves of the sea, um, you know, in a storm on the ocean by Nevrast. It feels more fitting, not only, I think, because we're used to it, but um, but you can see how the connection between Tour and the sea is much more uh, forceful there. This, of course, makes perfect sense. Why does it make perfect sense? Well, because Syrian, right? I mean, um, we saw from throughout the Grey Annals, like literally from the first entry in the Grey Annals, we saw how important the River Syrian is. A significance which comes up in the published Silmarillion, but seems to me rather less emphasized than we see in the Grey Annals. And here's one of those changes. This is one of those changes, actually, which serves to sort of de-emphasize the Syrian. Remember when Olmo talks about his power um, receding from the river? It's not in this passage, but it's part of the message that Tuor is sent with, right? Um, how Glaurung has, you know, poisoned the sources of, of Syrian and all that stuff. Remember that? Um, so that's um, in a context where a very large percentage. Is it a hundred percent of the communication between like Omo gives visions to people to communicate important things to them. Um, but in these early versions, it always happens at the river Syrian, right? Um, so the idea of almost power receding from the, from the river Syrian is t tantamount to saying, yeah, I got nothing. I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going dark here. Right. Um, by shifting that meeting uh, to uh, to the coast, right, um, where it it de-emphasizes the role of the river Syrian, though of course it establishes that connection between Tuor and the sea um, much more firmly. I mean, it's he says the yearning for the great sea was ever after in his heart. Has he ever seen it? I don't, I, I don't, I don't think he ever has, in, in this version of the story. I don't think Tor has ever seen the sea, right? Now that that isn't necessarily going to stop him longing for it. Again, I'm not. I'm not saying I can't understand how he could yearn for the sea. He's yearning for the sea because he's met Olmo, right? So I, I get that. Um, but again, his link to the great sea is 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 more indirect by linking Tor's call to the sea and especially having him come to the shore looking out westward right off across the sea towards where Valinor is and Olmo appears to him in that direction. The, the whole westward orientation, right? Um, uh, more, fo you know, greater focus on the sea and the sort of westward orientation um, of that thing um, does introduce a very significant change in the story and anticipates um, the um, uh, the the coming of Arendel, 
right, a little bit more directly. Whereas again, here, he's just primarily leaning into the holiness, essentially, of the river Syrian. Um, yeah, 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 good. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Jacob is saying, in, in, in retrospect, when I was thinking about the river and the most recent fall of Gondolin, I never understood all the talk about it there and the reeds and why in one version they go down it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, we're seeing there like memories of this, old, you know, where it was always about the river and down um, in Nantathrin by the reeds. It's interesting because that one of the last memories, really, of Nantathrin um, is in Treebeard's song. He mentions this area, um, but it almost goes away. When this passage goes, it almost goes away. There was another incident. Baron and Luthien one? I'm forgetting now. That was originally down here, and which also gets relocated. So... Um, uh, we end up in the published Silmarillion never really going down there at all, uh, which is interesting. But um, anyway, okay. Um, notice, of course, the message of Olmo is, as we saw, remember we, we were looking before at how the, uh, at the reduction of the prophecy, how he was moving away um, from the idea of Turgon being told to attack, and that destruction would come to uh, Melkor directly through Turgon, right? Turgon's agency, Turgon's choice. Um, and that has gone almost completely away here now, right? The message from Olmo to uh, Turgon is now simply depart and abandon the city and go down to the sea, right? Um, yeah. Um, he's at the mouths of the Syrians. Doesn't Syrian empty into the sea? Oh, oh I see, Karina, you're, because I said, has he ever even seen the sea? I, I guess it's the bay, right? I mean, the Bay of Balar, but it's like a sheltered bay behind the Isle of Balar. I'm just saying, like, it's, yeah, I mean, so he would have been, it, it counts. I mean, there's salt water there, right? It counts. Um, Yeah, it's just that the emphasis is not him actually confronting the ocean. Um, certainly not the kind... I mean, think of how different that is, right? The whole, like, atmosphere, right? Um, the whole... Uh, um, the whole trajectory of... Or the whole, I don't know the whole sense of Nantathrin, of this, that, that southern region, is peace and beauty, right? And so replacing that with the storm-tossed beach, right, Olmo rising from the storm-tossed beach, that's, it's a very, very different kind of encounter with the ocean. So, Karina, maybe I should have said, like, he never really <laughs> encountered the ocean, right? He didn't know from ocean, right, when he just, like, was paddling around at the mouths of Syria and down in the Bay of Balar. Um, yeah. Now, Fanaro, I agree with you. Fanaro says, I wish we had at least a suggestion that Turgon was conflicted. This annal reads like he's just prideful. But Turgon would not listen to this council. That's it, right? Yeah. 
exactly. Now, this, of course, is one of the one of the dangers of brevity, right, is kind of flattening things out. And one of the reasons why you could imagine him not wanting the annals just to stand by themselves, right? Because if he's not going to tell the whole story, sort of the more nuanced version of this story, then it's going to be hard, right? It's going to um, he's going to end up really kind of changing things there, or at least not getting the full opportunity. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, I agree that that's, um, this view of Turgon is brief and terse. Um, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. All right. The end of the annals. Here it is. Then they lifted up Turin and found that Gurthang had broken asunder. So I've skipped most of Turin's story because most of the rest of it is identical to the published Silmarillion. I mean, as Christopher is going to explain, most of the, like a, a huge portion of the text from when he went to Dor, from when Turin returns to Dor Loman until the end, a huge portion of the, the text there that's in the published Silmarillion is taken from the Grey Annals here, right? So um, we got a lot of the Turin story, um, uh, like much of it, really. Um, but, um, uh, but, we were familiar with it. But I, so I wanted to talk about the end here. Then they lifted up Turin and found that Gurthang had broken asunder. But elves and men gathered then great store of wood and made a mighty burning, and the worm was consumed to ashes. But Turin they laid in a high mound where he had fallen, and the shards of Gurthang were laid beside him. And when all was done, the elves sang a lament for the children of Hurin, and a great grey stone was set upon the mound, and thereon was carven in the runes of Doriath, Here the manuscript comes to an end. <laughs> um, here the manuscript comes to an end at the foot of a page, and the typescript also. Um, so first of all, it's somewhere between hard and impossible to imagine that Tolkien actually <laughs> was going to end there, right? Because on the one hand, we're coming to the end of the Turin story, you could see him completing the Turin story. I mean, we're, we're there, right? I mean, it's literally the tombstone is being erected. But before the epitaph can be written, right, off, you know, we, 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 we cut it off. It reminds me of that, um, that um, uh, the poem, Humpty Dumpty's poem, right? Um, he tried to turn the handle, but... Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so... <laughs> they clearly didn't intend to end it here. The fact that it ends at the foot of a page might suggest that he'd finished it and the last page got lost. Um, except that it also ends there in the typescript. So maybe not. I don't really know. Um, uh, anyway, okay. Later, and probably a good while later, since the writing is in ballpoint pen, my father added in the margin of the manuscript... Turin Turambar Dagnir Glorunga. And beneath and beneath they wrote also Neonor Niniel. But she was not there, nor was it ever known whither the cold waters of Teglin had taken her. Thus ended the Narn Ichin Hurin, which is the longest of all the lays of Beleriand, and was made by men. Um so that of course the inscription and everything else, that is again published Silmarillion. You see Christopher took that from here. Um, and so again, it's possible 
that his father is writing this later on, but that seems to me a little bit, a little bit unlikely, right? Um, I think, again, if we'd, if we'd had that and then he finished, it might be really tempting to say. So, like, how to interpret this? I don't know exactly how to interpret this, but here's one possibility. Again, if he had written all the way through the end, if he had written, like, so what he wrote in pen at the bottom there, if that had been included in the original manuscript and in the typescript, it would kind of look like he was finishing the Grey Annals at the end of the Turin story, right? I mean, he comes to the end, writes the inscriptions, and says the end of the Grey Annals, right? Um, but the fact that he didn't, the fact that his manuscript and typescript end with... Um, and thereon was carven in the runes of Doriath, colon, um, that seems to suggest that he was not done, right? Not only not done with that thought, not done with that story, but therefore I, also possibly not done with the end of the annals as well. Um, the very incompleteness, the very fact that the end of the story is incomplete suggests, or at least leaves open the possibility that he, he, was, he was definitely going to continue it. Uh, further. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so not sure, to, but I thought that was, I thought it was interesting how close he got to the end and then apparently didn't finish. Um, okay. A couple notes now. Um, I'm, I'm looking at, um, Christopher's end notes. Now there's just a few things I wanted to go back and, uh, bring out from his discussion. This is uh, from his notes on paragraph 38. In Unfinished Tales occurs the following passage. Cyros was of the Nandor, being one of those who took refuge in Doriath after the fall of their lord Denethor upon Amon Ereb in the first battle of Beleriand. These elves dwelt for the most part in Arthorian, between Aros and Kelon in the east of Doriath, wandering at times over Kelon into the wild lands beyond, and they were no friends to the Edain since their passage through Osiriand and settlement in Estelot. This was largely derived from an isolated note, very rapidly written and not at all and not at all points intelligible, among the Narn papers, but somewhat reduced. It is remarked in this note that the Nandor had turned away, never seen the sea or even Ose, and had become virtually Avari. They had also picked up various Avari before they came back west to Osirian. Of those Nandor who took refuge in Doriath after the fall of Denethor, it is said, uh, uh, yes, sorry. In the event that they did not ming in the event they did not mingle happily with the Teleri of Doriath, and so dwelt mostly in the small land Eglamar, Arthorian under their own chief. Some of them were dark-hearted, though this did not necessarily appear except under strain or provocation. The chief of the guest elves, as they were called, was given a permanent place in Thingol's council, and Cyros, in this note, called in fact Orgoth, or Orgol, was the son of the chief of the guest elves, and had been for a long time resident in Menegroth. Christopher adds, I think it very probable that my father wrote Orgol, and of the guest elves in Arthurian, on the typescript of the Grey Annals, at the same time as he wrote this note. Okay, okay, so... The point of interest here, at least point of interest to me, is sort of context. Uh, 
sort of world-building context that Tolkien gives us for Cyros. Who is Cyros? Like we know he is of the Green Elves. Like that's in most of the versions of the uh, of the Turin story. Um, and that he's a, a member of Thingol's council, right? That he's uh, has an important place in the court. Um, Copperfinch, yeah, dark-hearted is uh, the very interesting element here, right? So first he sets it up by talking about the, by giving a little bit more context about the Nandor than we generally have gotten in other places. We knew that they were unwilling to leave. Well, no, not unwilling. Of course, unwilling is what Avari means, right? Um, and that was always the distinction, like the distinction between the Avari and the Nandor. What made them different? Well, again, in the published Silmarillion, the emphasis seems to be on the fact that the, the Avari are defined, literally their name is derived from the fact that they're from like a negative, right? We're not willing to go. We want nothing to do with it. The Nandor are not defined by unwillingness, right? They don't have that negative definition. They have a positive definition, right? The Nandor are distinct as a people, not because they say, oh, we don't want to go to the ocean, right? They're not the anti-ocean elves. They stay because of their positive love for the land that they pass through. As they're going on the long journey, right, the green elves are the ones who come to delightful places and say, actually, this is where we want to be, right? We have found the land that suits us, and we want to just stay here. We don't need Valinor after all, right? And so, on the one hand, functionally, the Nandor and the Avari were always very similar, right? In one sense, right? Both of them remaining behind, the, the Nandor being the first to sort of and I know there's a distinction between the Nandor who stayed and then the Nandor who crossed over the mountains again. I'm, I'm not, I'm lumping those together for the moment. Um, anyway, okay. So point is that that has always seemed to me a really fundamental, it's what I was kind of gleaning from the published Silmarillion was that that was a, a, a distinguishing feature between the Nandor and Avari, that the Avari were associated with that negative choice, whereas the Nandor were associated with a positive choice, even though they basically ended up in the same place doing the same things. Um, and here, he comes down a little more strongly on the link between them, that they became virtually Avari. Um... But also that when they crossed over the mountains into Assyriand, some of the Avari came with them as well, which is not mentioned in the published Silmarillion, right? Um, but then we get this other thing, which I th seems to me to be like a, a backstory with explanatory value. Because Cyrus is a jerk. So it, it feels like a big part of the question here is like, why is Cyrus a jerk, right? Why? Because um, he totally is. You know, Cyrus, uh, I mean, if uh, um, of all of the elves in Tolkien's stories, whoever richly deserved to have a heavy drinking vessel chucked at their faces, Cyrus is pretty high up the list, right? He might not be the one with the absolutely most... Um, you know, bashable with drinking vessels face, but 
pretty high up there, right? I mean, like uh, when he gets when he gets the cup smashed into his face, like it's hard to say, you know, he didn't deserve it. <laughs> but anyway, um, like what what's his what's his deal? And if he's such a jerk, more importantly, if he's such a jerk, why is he a member of Thing- Thingol's council? Right? I mean, it's it's it was always Thingol. Um, generally comes across well in the Turin story. I mean, um, he's like um, a sort of reformed character making good choices or trying to make good choices. I mean, look, nobody is capable of like making wonderful choices in the context of the story of Turin Turinbar, but Thingol does his best. He really does. It's hard to blame him for anything that happens. Um, but um, uh, anyway... So, given the fact that Thingol is being described in this generally positive way throughout the Turin story, one of the the sort of unanswered questions was always like, why does he put up with that Cyros jerk, right? Um, and here we have an answer that Tolkien seems to have been coming with, coming up with, after on, um, after on, later on. Um, and notice that this is um, written. This is Christo, something Christopher is finding among the Narn papers. That is, when Tolkien sat down to write the longer version, the expanded version of the Turin Turin Bar story, that's when this came up, right? So it seems explicitly, now, implicitly, uh, but. Um, rather pointedly, uh, to have explanatory power, to explain both why Saros was a jerk and why Thingol put up with him. And the answer was he kind of had to. That there was this uncomfortable political situation where there were a bunch of the elves uh, after the fall of Denethor, a bunch of those Assyrian elves who were living in Doriath, but they weren't happy. And some of them were dark-hearted. Some of them were jerks. And Cyros is the, and there was like a, like, there was an ex officio member of Thingol's council, right? The leader of the guest elves, the leader of this faction was given a spot. That's a, that's a wise political move. That's a wise and generous political move on Thingol's part, right? To create this ex officio seat, right? Uh, For the leader of these separate and slightly disaffected group of elves. So, yeah, good political move. Bring them in, right? Give them a seat at the table uh, so that they can, you know, their perspective can be heard. Which suggests that Thingol didn't choose Cyros. That they chose him. He was the chief of... He was their chief. And so Thingol was stuck with him. Who knows? Thingol might have wanted to chuck a cup at his face himself on more than one occasion. I, I, I you know, I couldn't blame him. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Cyrus is, is his son, right? That's interesting. That's different from the other text. But in any case, th- this explains why he's, um, uh, why he's there. And again, this, all of this seems to me to be in part, um, again, explain, uh, explaining, um, Thingol's, uh, decisions. But I would also add, I would also point to this as another example of ways in which 
Tolkien is thinking through the world building a little bit more, um, a little bit more thoroughly, right? It's where he's going for answers to these kinds of questions now, which was not always the case in the Silmarillion story. Um, okay. A quick note on the Balrog question. We talked about this, but I just wanted to revisit it again. Um, uh, the horde of, of Balrogs that comes out in the near Nythernoidiad, and I was talking about that and the significance of that. I still think it very significant. Christopher's comment, the Balrogs were still at this time conceived to exist in large numbers. Um, uh, Cross-reference to the Annals of Amon, Melkor sent forth on a sudden a host of the Balrogs, at which point my father noted on the typescript there should not be supposed there should not be supposed more than say three or at most seven ever existed. So the concept of the small number of Balrogs, right? The highly limited Balrog population was an idea which was emerging. Now my question is like at this time, what are we talking? We're talking early fifties, right? One way or another, one way or another, this, this, I mean, the point I was emphasizing before, which I still think a very important point, I mean, it's still the thing that blows my own mind, is that after he has written The Bridge of Khazad-dûm, Tolkien is still, when writing both the Annals of Amman and the Grey Annals, he is still imagining thousands of Balrogs. Um... It's very hard for me to 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 imagine that, and but of course we also know at the at this time, like you know a note on the typescript shows that not in the time of writing the annals, but you know um, I don't know exactly when that note was. I guess it could have been significantly more. Um, uh, I. Uh, Spunky's asking, do I think Balrogs were originally numerous because he didn't have trolls uh, fully developed as shock troops and used Balrogs? Well, he certainly did use Balrogs as shock troops. I mean, heavy infantry is exactly the role that Balrogs were playing. Very heavy, admittedly, but heavy infantry. Um, and... Uh, I'm trying to think of examples hard to do off the top of my head. Troll examples, I'm saying. Um, uh, yeah, there were ideas of connecting the Balrog to Saruman, Jacob, originally. That was true. But again, we're talking, the whole thing is done and revised. The text of the Lord of the Rings, I mean. Um, but what this This suggests to me the following sequence. Balrogs were always numerous. Back in the old days, Balrogs were all over the place. Whole swarms of Balrogs. Just read the fall of Gondolin from the Book of Lost Tales, and that's very clear. Okay, so in the oldest versions of the stories, his initial concept of Balrogs is that there's thousands of them. And that remained true. Then he writes The Lord of the Rings. 
and a Balrog of Morgoth is encountered and Gandalf has his confrontation with him on the bridge and he's a huge deal and uh, Gandalf kills him but then dies and all that stuff. Um, then, having written that story, he comes back. But he's in Silmarillion mode now and like there are thousands of Balrogs in Silmarillion tradition. So he seems in both annals to have continued writing in that way. But I don't know if perhaps there was some cognitive dissonance between the Bridge of Khazad-dûm and the thousands of Balrogs on the battlefield um, that led him finally to decide, no, three, at most seven, right? Um, in other words, that it was, I think, very possibly, even very likely to be the confrontation between Gandalf and the Balrog that changed his mind about Balrogs, right? Um, because clearly, on the one hand, yeah, First Age, Third Age, things in the Third Age are much smaller, so if you meet even somebody of medium importance uh, from the First Age, still existing in the Third Age is going to seem like a huge deal, right? On the one hand, I totally get that. That's, that's, that's obviously true. Glorfindel, for instance, right, um, was cool, but he wasn't, like, that cool. <laughs> he wasn't, like, head and shoulders one of the greats among all the elves. And then, you know, you meet him in the Lord of the Rings, and he's, like, ridiculous, right? Uh, totally OP. So, again, I don't think... Um, uh, I don't think that that's... Um, uh, it's that kind of... Now, of course, footnote, Glorfindel, yes, return from death, maybe augmented him a little bit, whatever... Uh, not not interested. Not, not talking about. I don't, I don't get too distracted about Glorfindel right now. I am interested. Don't want to get distracted. Um, but still, no matter how you slice it, when you just in cold blood face the concept, what emerged to destroy the kingdom of Khazad Doom at the height of its powers, and what. Gandalf confronted and could only barely and heroically defeat at the cost of his own life was Balrog number 1,876, a member of the, you know, like a member of Morgoth's heavy infantry, right? One of about 3,000 units on the field. Like the, the proportions there are still they don't it doesn't the math doesn't seem to work out if you see what i mean uh between the proportion between first age to third age and um the role that the balrog plays and the position the imaginative position that he asks us to conceive of the balrog perform um, holding if he's just one of the thousand shock troops doesn't as i say it doesn't really seem to me to work really well um but um yeah yeah. <laughs> Jocelyn says, Gorfindel is distracting. I'm not the only one? Is what you're saying? Yeah, no, I, I hear that. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. I, Fanaro, my, I think that's his first impulse. I think the reason he's okay with it at first, the reason he reverts back 
to when he starts doing these revisions and he's like, oh yeah, thousands of Balrogs, NBD, right? The reason I think that he doesn't, it doesn't give him pause right away. Why he doesn't change, make this change instantly is exactly as you're saying, the world is in decline, both good and evil. Um, yeah, that's exactly what I was talking about, about the ratio. Um, um, yeah, he says, I think Tolkien was maybe dialing in exactly how high and powerful the world had been. Um, we know where we end up in the Third Age, but how far are we falling from? Yeah, I, I, my suspicion is that that's like what he told himself when he wrote about the charge of the Thousand Balrogs, right? That he was like, yeah, no, man, but this is, this is First Age, man. You know, First Age, it was, you know... Um, you know, when the elves were elves and the Balrogs were nervous, right? First age, this was a big deal. Um, but, um, but, but clearly he changes his mind, right? And is like, no, no, even in the first age, the Balrogs were a big deal, right? There were only, like, the one, the Balrog that Gandalf faced was one of the, like, you know, seven, you know, personal bodyguard of Morgoth, right? Yeah, okay, that, that fits um it's still a huge deal right i mean the balrog in you know from uh you know the beginning of the durin's bane period up to the fight with gandalf the balrog is a huge deal right so it still fits that even with the third age discount right the third age um third age decline um but um yeah yeah anyway um Yeah, Dennis is asking, um, certainly not thousands, but what would it take to cow Shelob, or uh, Ungoliant, you mean, at the height of her power? Yeah, um, well, but if the if the Balrogs are a really big deal, Seven could probably do the trick, right? And don't forget, Morgoth is there too, right? You know, he's. it's not like the Seven Balrogs are fighting her off on their own. Um, it's already Morgoth versus Ungoliant. And she's going to eat him, right? And then the Balrogs come and help him in with their help, right? It's, you know, it's not like she's just like, oh, no, a Balrog is going to beat me up. Morgoth was, again, he was, he was also, he was also there. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, I, I clearly, in fact, it's easier for me to imagine even three. Like, let's imagine there are three Balrogs, Right which must be a very, very big deal. Um, of course, there have to be at least three, because there are three recorded Balrog deaths, right? Gandalf's Balrog, um, Glorfindel's Balrog, and um, uh, Gothmog, right, by Ecthelion. So um, three is the minimum there could possibly be. But anyway, even let's imagine it was just those three. Um those three Balrogs now on the side of, uh, of Morgoth, I think they, they themselves increase so greatly in stature. Um, and that's easier for me to imagine, like three really powerful Balrogs coming to Morgoth's side and th them three end with the threat of Morgoth's presence there too. Ungoliant flees. That's actually easier for me to imagine than Morgoth and having like 500 you know, bitty Balrogs uh, come around and, and um, you know, whack it ungoliant with their little whips of flame, 
right um yeah yeah um <laughs> uh, JJ Ganos Balrog and Gorfindel's but it makes you think of like what like Darwin's Finch or something like that yeah yeah you're right each one discovered a unique species of Balrog yeah um maybe they do have uh, vestigial wings just kidding about that um yeah yeah um all right so anyway, I just want to come back to that briefly. Um, uh, okay, let's talk about... Um, <laughs> so Christopher Tolkien made up the word analytic. Um, uh, so I... <laughs> I I one upped him and uh, in, <laughs> invented the word analysticity. Um, anyway, so concerning analysticity... Uh, let's, uh, let's, uh, this is, a, this is a two slide thing. So let me, uh, let's, uh, let's see what Christopher is saying here. This is a convenient place. Um, what is this place? We're in the, we're in the Turin story. This is a convenient place to describe a text whose relation to the gray annals is very curious. The text itself has been given in unfinished tales. Page 159 to 62, the story of the coming of the Noldoran elves, Gelmir and Arminas to Nargothrond to warn Oradreth of its peril. So remember that passage is in the Unfinished Tales, Narn material, but it's not in the published Silmarillion. Um, exactly what the messengers, the Noldor messengers who come and deliver the warning, like take the bridge down, you idiot. Remember that, that, that warning? Um, and Turin doesn't listen to them. So that version of the story is included in Unfinished Tales. Okay. Um, right. Uh, they're coming to Nargothrond to warn Ordreth of its peril and their harsh reception by Turin. There is both a manuscript based on a very rough draft outline written on a slip and a typescript with carbon copy made by my father on the typewriter that he seems to have used first about the end of 1958. Okay, so in 1958... He's written this extra passage about Gelmir and Arminas. Okay. The manuscript has no title or heading, but begins, as does the rough draft and typescript, with the date 495. The top copy of the typescript has a heading added in manuscript. So written on the top of the typescript is insertion for the longer form of the Narn. So this manuscript and typescript are being labeled as a passage of text that is supposed to get inserted into the long form of the Turin story. But the carbon copy of the typescript has the heading also added in manuscript, so he writes on the, on the carbon copy, insertion to gray annals. But this was changed to the reading of the top copy. That's pro pro probably just a mistake, right? He meant it was supposed to be inserted for the longer form of the Narn. Right. Probably a red herring that he said insertion to the Grey Annals. Okay. Um, the curious thing is that while the manuscript has no analytic quality apart from the date 495, the typescript begins with the analytic word here, a usage derived from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Here Morgoth assailed Nargothrond. Turin now commanded all the forces of Nargothrond and ruled all matters of war. 
In the spring, there came two elves, and they named themselves Gelmir and Arminas. Um, so that technique, you know, it's following the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, like that's the way in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is an historical annal, um, they, they start entries with the word here, right? Um, like you start with the date, and then you say here. So here in this date, in 495, here's, here's what happened. Um, and so notice he said that was not in the manuscript. It was only in the typescript. So when he wrote the manuscript, so between the manuscript and the typescript, he decided to make this thing that he's writing for insertion in the longer form of the Narn more analytic, sound more like an anal entry. Okay? Keep going, Christopher. This is very puzzling. So far as the content of the original manuscript of Gelmir and Arminas is concerned, there seems nothing against the supposition that my father wrote it as an insertion to the Grey Annals, and indeed in appearance and style of script, it could derive from the time when he was working on them before the publication of The Lord of the Rings, like after the writing before the publication, early 50s. The puzzle lies in my father's motive for making, years later, a typescript of the text and adding to it material taken directly from the Grey Annals, specifically reinforcing the place of Gelmir and Arminas in the annalistic context. Together with his uncertainty, show, that is, remember the, the word here, is one of the things he's talking about here, right? Why does he, um, why does he make it sound more like an annal when he goes back to make a type, a typescript of it? So wait, so y you follow so far? So he's saying, okay, like, whatever. It's not surprising, right? It's not surprising that Tolkien sat down and was like, oh, hey, uh, Gelmir and Arminas, I, there's this. I want to, I want to, I want to I wanna write this incident, right? I want to write this incident. Um, I'm going to shove it in here. Like, it, it belongs in this spot in the Grey Annals. I'll, I'll include it in the longer Narn when I put all that stuff together, right? And write the longer version of the Turin story. Um, and that he could have written it in the early 50s when he was doing those developments, writing the longer Narn and all that stuff, right? So Christopher's like, that's not hard to understand at all. That would be, that's, that's just like him all over the place. What is puzzling is that he not only goes back years later, like in the second wave of Silmarillion revision in the late 50s, and does a typescript version of this manuscript chunk. That, that might sound okay, maybe that's okay, right? But the question is, if the destiny of this manuscript chunk, as he wrote on the top of it, was for it to go into the Narn, why is he making it sound like an entry? In, like, he ups, he makes it sound more analytic, more like an anal entry, as he revises it by when he's typing it up. Why would he do that? That's the puzzle, Christopher says. So, um, so together with his uncertainty, shown in the headings to the carbon copy, as to what its place was actually going to be. So here Christopher's assuming that there was actually that his mind was divided. Like at one time he said, put it in the Narn and the other time he said, put it in the gray annals. Um, maybe it wasn't just a slip. Maybe it was, there was, that's a sign of actual indecision. Christopher is suggesting. Subsequently, indeed, he bracketed on the manuscript, the date and the opening words 
495, here Morgoth assailed Nargothrond. In other words, later on he bracketed the primary elements that made it look like an anal entry and struck out the words here and in the spring at the beginning of the passage cited above. It's another passage I skipped. Thus removing the obviously analytic features. But the conclusion seems inescapable that when he made the typescript, he could still conceive of the annals as an ingredient in the recorded tradition of the Elder Days. Okay, so do you see what this shows? I've been suggesting the possibility, or I've been like asking the question as we've been going through the Grey Annals, is what we're seeing evidence that Tolkien started off writing the annals, thought it was a good idea, right? But the annals are getting out of hand, right? He's right. This, his narratives are getting longer and longer. He's written the entire Silmarillion chapter of Turin Turambar, practically, right? Um, which has just been like exploding in the annals. So does that mean that he's moving away from the annals entirely, that he, that he doesn't mean to do it? anymore. And Christopher says, the evidence of this weird little document suggests that at still in 1958, later on, he is still planning that the annals should exist. Wherever he might have been drifting in the early 50s, when he was writing the Grey Annals and the Annals of Amon, um, however those were drifting in themselves, when he returned to the project in the late 50s, he had not given up on the idea of the annals. Um, and because we can see that because he's planning, um, he's, um, um, he's annulifying this text in the typescript in order to make it fit better into the gray annals, which he seems to be intending to preserve in that form, right? Okay, so howsoever the approach to writing the annals seems to be changing, like they're, they're getting longer and longer and bigger and bigger as it goes along until it's including like most of the whole Narn and Turin story. Um, yet, Tolkien is still holding on, clearly. Still holding, there's evidence that he's still holding on to this idea later on. He's not given up on the idea. Okay, more. Um, here's a really fun passage. Um, so this is about the end of the, well, about the battle, the end of Nargothrond and, and, uh, the confrontation with Glaurung. Here's Christopher's commentary. From the battle of Tumhalad to the end of the tale of Turin, the text of the Grey Annals was virtually the sole source for the latter part of chapter 21 of Turin Turambar in the published Silmarillion. So this is where he's acknowledging, like, yeah, this is, like, straight up Silmarillion, like, uh, this is what I used um, virtually by itself for the published Silmarillion. There now enters an element in the history, however, of which I was unaware, or more accurately misinterpreted, when I prepared the text of the Narn for publication in Unfinished Tales, and which must be made clear. Okay. All right, so um, you... So you see his, so let's, let's refresh our memories about what he's talking about, right? So, okay, so 1977, 
Silmarillion comes out. In the Silmarillion, we got the of Turin, Turin Bar, chapter 21, right? In the Silmarillion. Most of that is taken from the Grey Annals. Well, most of that latter part, as he says, is taken from the Grey Annals here, right? Now, in Unfinished Tales, oh, what was the date? It was in the 80s. 80, was it 84? 86? I can't remember the date. Somebody tell me the date of Unfinished Tales because I've forgotten it. Um, in the 80s, he publishes Unfinished Tales. And you will recall that in the first section of Unfinished Tales, that's where we get the opening of the tragically unfinished uh, revised Tuor story. Um, and um, uh, and also the Narn that he keeps referring to here. So Tolkien was writing a longer version of the Turin Turambar story, which was based on the earlier stuff. 1980. It was, it was 1980 straight up. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. 1980. So in 1980, Christopher puts out Unfinished Tales. Um, and the Narn, so the longer version of the Turin story that Tolkien was writing. And basically, it's the children of Hurin. Okay? Essentially the children of Hurin. There's a little bit more complexity there, but functionally, he um, he beefed up the the material that Christopher Tolkien used for the chapter, the Turin chapter in the Silmarillion, and beefed it up into the whole Children of Hurin. Okay. How Christopher first presented this material was in that chapter called the Narni Heen Hurin in Unfinished Tales, where he, Christopher, provides the new material that's not in the Silmarillion, but then has long spots where he's like, and um, now it's the same. Go back to the published Silmarillion and read the next 10 pages, then come back and hear some more. Right. Um, so when he was putting that together in order to present like what would be if you put it all together the full text but it was that was never done until the children of hurin was published in what was it 1995 i want to say children of hurin um no it wasn't 95 it was later than that it was later than that i was in grad school already anyway 2005 might have been 2005 anyway um uh so anyway when he um So that's the process that he's talking about. So the Narn existed as a full text, but it began as the. So we know the Grey Annals, right, is the major thing that he's draw, that Christopher is drawing from for the Silmarillion text. That story is also what Tolkien was using as the base and expanding. Two thousand seven. Okay, there we go. Getting my dates straight here. Two thousand seven. Children of Hurin. Nineteen eighty. Unfinished tales. Okay. Um. Anyway, yeah, actually, the ones which overlap with my own life are, like, more confusing. Actually, not that 1980 doesn't overlap with my life, but I wasn't exactly reading Unfinished Tales the day it came out. I was too busy in kindergarten. But anyway, uh, okay, so uh, back to Christopher here. 
Okay. At this time, I was under the impression that the last part of the Narn, from the beginning of the section entitled The Return of Turin to Dor Loman to the End, in Unfinished Tales, so I was under the impression that that last part was a relatively late text, belonging with all the other Narn material that, in terms of narrative, precedes it. And I assumed that the story in the Grey Annals, to which the last part of the Narn is obviously closely related, despite its much greater length, preceded it by some years, and that it was in fact an elaboration of the story of the Annals. Okay? All right. All right. So, so, uh, this is this, this is how, this is the story that Christopher is saying here he believed was true, right? He believed that there was the Grey Annals version of the story, which is much shorter than the Narn version, right? So he thought that the short Grey Annals version came first, and then much later, the longer Narn material got added to it and elaborated, and that the ending of the story, the return of Turin to Dorlom and to the end, that this th that is the part that's most similar to the Grey Annals. Um, that part was 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 written again, like the rest of it, much later than the Grey Annals, right? So, so his understanding of the relationship between those two texts, the longer Narn, which gets published in the Children of Hurin later on, and the Grey Annals version of the text, his understanding was: Tolkien first wrote the Grey Annals text, which is shorter, and then he expanded it to make the full Narn version. Totally logical. That seems to all that seems to all work out just fine. This view is wholly erroneous, he goes on to add, and was due to my failure to study sufficiently closely the material preserved in a different place that preceded the final text of the story in the Narn. In fact, it soon becomes plain, as will be seen in the commentary that follows, that the long narrative in the Grey Annals was based directly on the final text in the Narn and was a reduction of that text. Congruent with, it, congruent with it at virtually all points. The manuscript of this latter is very similar in appearance and style of script to that of the Annals of Amman and the Grey Annals, and undoubtedly belongs to the same period, presumptively 1951. Thus, the massive development and enhancement of the final tragedy in Brethil is yet another major work of the prolific time that followed the completion of The Lord of the Rings. Okay, following? Here's what he says he discovers. He discovered he was dead wrong about that whole thing. So he thought originally the annals were written later, like in the late 50s. Sorry, I said it backwards. I'll come in again. He thought originally that the Narn was written later, in the late 50s. The Grey Annals, he knew the Grey Annals were written, and the Annals of Amon, were written right after he completed the Lord of the Rings in 1951 there, right? So during that big boom of writing after the Lord of the Rings was finished, he wrote the Grey Annals then, and then expanded them later on. Remember what he thought happened, right? 
start with the short version, expand to the long version, and that he expanded the long version later on, probably in like the late 50s or something, right? And Christopher says, actually, no. The Narn came first. Tolkien wrote the Narn early in 1951 and then wrote the Grey Annals account based on it. So why is the Turin story in the Grey Annals so much longer than other parts of the Grey Annals? Not because he was getting more carried away and just writing spontaneously a longer and longer story. It was because he'd already written the full Children of Hurin version of the story and deliberately wrote a compressed version of it in the Grey Annals. So the Narn came first and the Grey Annals were based on it. A reduction of the Narn rather than the Narn being an expansion of the Grey Annals. So the reason that Grey Annal is so long is that he had so much to work with. He was, compared to the whole Narn, it's pretty short, actually, right? So this calls into question this idea of, like, the Annals just getting more and more out of control until this one part of the Annals becomes the whole Narnihin Hurin, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, let's, uh, let's keep going. Hang on, not yet. Um, okay. Oh, by the way, this, um, Someone was asking a really cool question, which I wanted to come back to. Um, let's see. What was the question? About. Oh, yes. Copper Finch was asking um, when in the text we read um, editorial alterations were made for consistency. Um, who is the editor? Christopher's talking about himself. Um, he was talking about the editorial choices he made in the Silmarillion. Um, he is really shy. <laughs> really shy. Into Whenever Christopher talks about the Silmarillion, here's the way I think of it. He always does so in a way... He does so with great humility. Um... Christopher's very humble. It, I mean, it, it, I mean, I don't, I don't know how he was, you know, like around the tea table, but he was uh, in his writing. He is very humble, and he always strives. Whenever he talks about his work on the Silmarillion, he contrives to make himself not sound like the hero, right? Um, like what he did in the Silmarillion process is like barely noticeable. It was like a really small thing, right? So he talks about himself in the third person. He doesn't um he doesn't say he doesn't ever he tries never to make the story about himself. And when he does have to um come in and explain choices that he made, um it tends to be 
sort of brief and matter of fact. And the only times that he talks about himself in the first person for an extended period of time, like he does in this slide, right? That whole first paragraph, look at all the, the eyes there. The only time he talks about himself at great length is when he's confessing a mistake that he made, right? Um, exactly, Jacob. When he talks about his errors, that's exactly when he spends all the time doing that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so yes, uh, in that passage, he is in fact talking about, like, he could have said, so I was forced to clean up this text and change some of these names so that they were consistent with this other, with the primary text that I was using there. But see, if he said it that way, it would sound like he was the hero, right? He would become the hero of the story. So instead he speaks in the third person and he's like, uh, yes, um, editorial alterations were made for consistency, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's Christopher all over. This is such a Christopher passage here. Um, the dramatization, right? The elevation and even dramatization of his own interpretive mistake. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Dora Stroke is quoting. Lots of people helped me in list of names, but of course any errors remaining are my own. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Very much. Very much his approach. Okay. Let us brace ourselves um, to go on and look at, this is from the notes, some of these uh, alternative endings that Tolkien was playing with of the Turin story. Um, I've said this is horrible um, because everything about the ending of the Turin story is horrible. What can I say? Um, okay. There are first some rough draft texts that sketch out ideas for the denouement of the tragedy. There can be no doubt that they were all abandoned in favor of the actual ending in N.E. and G.A. So G.A. is the Grey Annals. N.E. is the Narn, the end of the Narn. Um, N.E. stands for end of the Narn. Just to clarify. Um... One of them, beginning as in N.E., page 143, immediately after the slaying of Brondir, reads as follows. Now cursing Middle-earth and all the life of men, now calling upon Niniel. But when at last the madness left him, he walked still in the wild, bent and haggard, and pondered all his life and his thought. And ever Niniel's image was before him. And now with opened eye he saw her, remembering his father. There in woman's form was his voice, and his face, and the bend of his brows, and his hair like to gold. Even as Turin had the dark hair and the gray eyes, the maybe pale cheek and something else, of Morwen his mother, of the house of Beor. Doubt could not be, but how had it chanced? And where then was Morwen? Had they never reached the hidden kingdom? How had they met Glaurung? But no, he dared never seek Morwen. And Christopher adds, I believe that this was a soon-abandoned idea that Turin would come through his own reflections to a recognition that what Brandir had said was true. It was displaced by the story of the coming of Mavlung to the crossings of Teglin and meeting Turin there. 
Okay. Um, uh, so let's just, so this is kind of like those moments when we're considering passage, like text that he changes, right? When he crosses something out and does something else instead. Um, these are rejected ideas for the end of the story. Now, the end of the Turin story, as it's written in the Grey Annals, as we so, and therefore as we get it in the published Silmarillion, also as we get it in the Narn, it was kind of there. It's, this is not. This does not seem to be a question of Tolkien trying to feel his way towards the right ending. He already has the right ending. He's already written the right ending. Instead, this seems to be, this and the several passages that follow, seem to be Tolkien flirting with changing the idea. Right? Um, So the question, my question, when reading these passages, is why? Um, What's the attraction in these ideas that's making him flirt with them? Um, What, if he is entertaining making this alteration to the end of the Turin story. What, what is the thing? What is the concept that he's entertaining? How does it, how does it, how does it change it? Okay. So the number one difference between this version and the actual version, the final version, I would say biggest deal in my opinion Turin doesn't seem to kill himself. So no suicide for Turin. Now, some might suspect that a version of the Turin story that does not end with Turin committing suicide might possibly be a more cheerful version. Right? I mean, you know, somebody might make that assumption and be like, hey, maybe it's not as hideously depressing as the end of the act. No, no, I, I don't think... It was certainly not to make it a brighter and more cheerful ending that he was flirting with this version, right? Though it may be true that Turin does not seem to commit suicide, or at least not yet, uh, in this version of the story, he's only <laughs> kept alive longer in order to have the horrible realization on his own, right? To have Brondir confront him with the fact that his wife, Niniel, was his sister, Neonor. And then, in rage, Turin kill him for it. And then have Turin set out from there in madness, and wandering. The reason I think he never kills himself is the phrase, and pondered all his life. Right? Um, I mean, I guess in theory, if he killed himself the week after, his life would just be short. But, but it does sound like he lived on after this. Um, uh, and instead, we get a Turin who spends the rest of his life haunted by the realization that Brondir was right. Looking back on his wife, Nino, and realizing she really was my sister. 
And what's worse, I should have known. Right? When I now reflect back on her and I realize how much she looked like dad, right? Like, it's, he can't shake it. Right? Once he's been told the connection, he knows it's true and spends the rest of his life contemplating how true that was. And therefore, how blind he had been not to see it first, right? And also not knowing how it happened and where then was Morwen and and all of these things, right? So, unbalance. Not sure this is a more cheerful end of the Turin story at all. Um, but... The thing that I think is... So again, I think the most significant thing is the lack of suicide, but I think that the most interesting thing is that this is a version of the story that ends with a reflective Turin. A Turin who is looking back over the choices of his life with horrifying and soul-destroying regret, but still who has... Um, who has who ends not with a rash, impulsive decision. Which his suicide is certainly rash and impulsive, right? Um, like he did so many other things in his life, right? Um, this is a... Turin is not only a broken man, walking in the wild, bent and haggard, um... But he's also a deeply changed man. And that's it's it's interesting. I'm not saying I like any of these better, because I don't. But as far as I can see, that seems to be that seems to me to be the most impactful difference. I don't know if maybe there are other things that strike you guys about this and keep it coming with the other passages too, that same that same kind of thing. Um but um yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the black sword talked him into it, Dennis. Well, he did propose it to the sword, right? It was his idea. Um, it's true the sword aided and abetted his decision to commit suicide, right? Um, uh, I mean, you know, he says to the sword, uh, I'm thinking of killing myself. Would you do it? And the sword is like, heck yeah, right? Let's do this thing. So, you know, um, yeah, the sword, sword was involved, but it wasn't the sword's idea. Um, and yes, the sword was solving its own conscience. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, okay. Next one. Next variant stub ending. And as he sat like a beggar man near the crossings of Tiglin, an old woman came by bowed on a stick. Ragged she was, and forlorn, and her gray hair blew wild in the wind. But she gave him good day, saying, And good day it is, master, for the sun is warm, and then hunger gnaws less. These are evil days for our likes, for I see by your bearing that, as I and so many, you have seen prouder days. In the summer we can drag on our lives, but who dare look beyond winter? Whither go you, lady, he said. For so, methinks, you were once wont to be called. 
No whither, she answered. I have long since ceased to seek what I missed. Now I took for naught. But now... Took? Maybe it's a typo? Now I look for naught? I think is what it should be. Now I look for naught, but what will keep me overnight to the next gray dawn? Tell me, whither goes this green road? Do any still dwell in the deep forest? And are they as fell as wanderers' tales tell? What say they? he asked. Okay, so this is a conversation between Turin and Morwen, right? So in in um, Stub, oh, Took is in the book? Okay. Now I took for naught. It's the took for naught. Now I took naught, but what will keep me over it? I don't know. Don't know who made the mistake. Thought I made the mistake, but I, I don't know if it's Christopher or if it's Tolkien on the manuscript and Christopher is just faithfully representing it. Anyway, whatever. Doesn't matter. Okay. So in stub ending number one, we had Turin not committing suicide and living the rest of his life in uh, horrifying regret and realization of the truth of what he murdered Brondir for. Um, and um, no, Scott, I think I think the meeting between Hurin and Morwen was already already done. Again, that's the implication of um, that's the implication of what Christopher said in that previous slide, that he thinks the Grey Annals text was derived from uh, the Narn, right? Um, but I'm not 100% sure there, Scott. We'll come back to this maybe when we get to um, the wanderings of Hurin later on in this volume, but um, uh, that, that section will probably make the sequence of the Hurin material a little bit more clear. Um, but again, I don't... Um, my understanding of all of these alternate versions is that these are not like... Again, this is not him feeling his way towards the real ending that we know, right? These are all... This is him contemplating changing the real ending that we know. Okay. Um... He ended the first stub by saying that Turin never had the guts, my paraphrase, to look for Morwen, right? Um, and then he just goes there. We've got Turin still sitting like a beggar man, right? So that seems to be con that sort of consistent from, but now, you know, is, is this the same? Is, is this exactly the same Turin? Um, has he been spending the whole time between the end of the story and here, uh, you know, between the death of, uh, Brondir and here, uh, contemplating in retrospect, how much his wife looked like his father. Um, and then we get to this point. I, I'm not completely sure of that, but, um, what's, what do you think is the most significant, um, uh, what do you think here is the most significant change? Like, 
the concept that he has changed. Once again, Turin still not committing suicide, so that holds over from the previous one. To me, the element that gets added in this is Morwen. What happens to Morwen? I have long since ceased to seek what I miss. Now I, I'm going to go with look for now. Now I look for not, but what will... Because again, she, she, ceased, she ceased to seek, so now she looks. I, I think that's what was intended. Now I look for not, but what will keep me overnight to the next gray dawn? Morwen has given up looking for Turin and Neonor. And now she doesn't care. And she's just... She now cares only about food that will keep her alive until the next day. Um, so we could call this one the actually she kind of was conquered version, right? Um, thinking, Scott, of the, um, you know, the meeting between Mor uh, Hurin and Morwen, right? Her defiance, her continued, her perseverance is what Hurin comments on, right? Um, the prospect of Turin spending the rest of a long life in horrifying remembering and bitter regret was not great. But actually... The idea that he does actually meet Morwen, and when he meets her, she's gone. You know, she doesn't even care anymore. I don't know. <laughs> that might be worse. It really might. This is horrible. Horrible. That he is imagining, when he is imagining what happened to Morwen, what he's imagining is she has been so beaten down by her experience that she no longer cares. Whew. Okay. No, thank you. Next one. And I think we'll end here. For at that moment, Turin appears. When the dragon died, his swoon also departed, but the anguish of the venom on his hand remained. He came, therefore, to Nengirith for help, believing the scouts there. It is Turin that slays. Is it Turin? Wait, it is Turin that slays Dorlos on the way? As Turinbar appears... Notice, by the way, so this is a Tolkien text, right? Notice, this is a... These, these are notes, right? This is him working out the idea. As Turinbar appears, Niniel gives a wail, crying, Turin, son of Hurin, too late have we met. The dark days are gone, but night comes after. How know you that name? Brandir told me, and behold, I am Neonor, therefore we, we must part. And with that, ere any could hold her, she leapt over the fall of Nengirith, and so ended, crying, Water, water, wash me clean, wash me of my life. Then in anguish, Turin was terrible to see, and a mad fury took him, and he cursed Middle-earth and all the life of men. And stooping over the falls, he cried in vain, Nino, Nino. And he turned in wrath upon all those that were there, against his command, and all fled away from him, save only Brandir, who for ruth and horror could not move. But Turin turned to him and said, Behold thy work, limping evil. Had Nino remained as I left her, and hadst thou not 
told my name. She might have been restrained from death. I could have gone away and left her, and she might have mourned for Turambar only. But Brandir cursed him, saying that their wedding could not have been hid, and that it was Turin who wrought all this grief. And me thou hast shorn of all that I had and would have, for thou art reckless and greedy. Then Turin slew Brandir in his wrath, and repenting, he slew himself, using same words to the sword. Mablung comes with news and is heart-stricken. Okay, in one sense, a couple senses actually, this is a far lesser departure, right? This is um, uh, the vast majority of the key elements of the finished story are all here, right? The realization on both sides, the double suicide, the um, uh, argument between him and Brondir, the murder of Brondir, and the suicide afterwards. Um, so, yeah, that's, um, that's all very similar. What's the key difference? The key difference is the final meeting of Turin and Ninio, right? Of, of Turin and Nienor. Um, uh, okay, so why propose, like, what's he proposing in this change? Again, what is, what is the essence of this change? What is the thing that changes? Well, the thing that changes is the, in this version of the story, he watches her die. And her final words, which are directed to the waterfall, right? And I like the observation, um, uh, oh, who was talking about, somebody was talking about that. Um, that, I've missed it now. Oh, yeah, Thanaro. Um, Nino speaking directly to the water, like Turin speaking directly to Gurthang. They're both speaking to the instruments of their suicides. Yeah, 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 that is, um, that is interesting, right? Um, but she's doing it in front of him, right? He's watching her plummet to her death. And the revelation of the truth comes to him from her mouth, right? She is the one who, calling him by his own name, Turin, son of Hurin, um, says, I am Neonor, therefore we must part, and she throws herself into the waterfall. Um, so the shock to Turin comes from her directly. And he has the added anguish of watching her. Now, there's no question. I I totally agree with you, Dennis. The pathos involved. The worst. Boy, this is a... There's a lot of competition for this... Um, particular prize. But in my opinion, 
the worst moment, like most horrible to read, most crushing moment in the end of the Turin story to read is when he wakes up, finds his hand has been treated, goes back, finds the people, and says, Rejoice! The dragon is dead. Where's Ninio? For her I would see. Oh, awful. So awful. So awful. Um, and we we lose that, right? Um, we, we lose that moment, and that moment is replaced with this open confrontation, right? And in one sense, of course, the experience, this experience is worse for Turin, right? Like, <laughs> this is not a very sensible option, but like if Turin had to choose whether he wanted the published version of the ending or this version, I think he'd choose the published one, right? Because, I mean, here, again, he's the, the horrible blow comes from Ninio herself, and then he, is, he watches her die, right? I, so I think, you know, his, um, um, his experience, I think, is, is in a way more terrible in this version. But certainly the experience for the audience, it just, it doesn't have, the dramatic irony is so painful in the public version that it's, you know, the, the, the primary version, um, that it's really hard to, um, yeah, now ah, you're right, Feyenoord, if, Tur if Turin had to choose, he would have chosen the wrong one. Yeah, no, you're right. You're totally right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Dennis, I do agree wouldn't he be tempted to jump in after her? Yes. One of the ways in which this version seems to me much weaker is um, why why does Turin slay Brondir? It's like Brondir has to do some serious lipping off to Turin in order to... And, but like that, it doesn't feel as real emotionally. You know what I mean? Because I agree with you, Dennis. I mean, he's overcome with grief and horror and remorse and sorrow. Um, seeing him throwing himself into the waterfall after her would make sense. Um, the shift from sorrow, grief, and horror to anger, I'm not at all saying that that's impossible or unlikely. Um, but of course, the fact that that is fueled by his fierce, even desperate desire to deny the truth that Brondir confronts him with. Brondir is the one who says that Ninio was your sister, Neonor. And the, the primary thing motivating his anger against Brondir is his very strong sense of denial, right? His, his um, like, self-preservation... Um, and not just self-preservation. I mean, just, yeah, like, all kinds of motivation for denial in that moment, right? Um, and to convince himself that this is a malicious lie brought about by Brondir, who always wanted to separate him from Nino, right? Who always envied him. Um, is, like, th that idea that Brondir's making it up maliciously. And... Um, that it's all his fault, 
is such a temptation, right? The anger at him, right? The excuse to feel anger at Brondir, um, combined with that, like, that sense of denial. It's so compelling, right? Why he would murder Brondir in that moment. But here I have a harder time seeing it because I, I agree with you, Dennis. Like, it seems a distraction. Um, Brondir has to almost slap him across the face and, you know, spit in his eyes to uh, get him to kill him. <laughs> right. Um, or to save her. Yeah, no. I mean, I think um, I'd, I'd. No. The way that it's described, that doesn't seem to be indicated by anybody. I mean, she's jumping off a cliff here. Um, so, yeah, I don't think... I mean, maybe he could be, like, delusional, but... Um, uh, is the latest version suggesting all the people watched her commit suicide? This one? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's the whole spectacle. Yeah, everybody's. There's a... There's a, this is, there, all of this, the confrontation... Her exposure of the truth, her suicide, Brondir's murder, is all happening in in front of a packed house. Well, not the murder, because everybody else runs away. Right? Everybody else runs away, uh, leaving only Brondir. So they don't witness the murder, but they witness the rest of it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and you're right; it does take Brondir more out of the center. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. So, and then poor Mablung, it's heartstroken, right? I mean, he comes with news, but he just comes with news and finds everybody dead already, right? Um, so poor Mablung is coming in with like like news to tell and nobody to tell it to, right? Um, and just finds the whole place littered with corpses, like a Shakespearean stage in Act Five, right? Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, horrible. Okay. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, that's it. We'll save that one for next time. Okay. So we did it. We got to the end of the Grey Annals. Um, well, I mean, there's more we could talk about. There's always more that we could talk about, but I'm done talking about the Grey Annals. So let us move on uh, to the later Quenta Silmarillion. So we've been talking about the Annals and I've been referring to the Quenta Silmarillion a bunch of times. So let's now look at what he's writing and how he's writing in the Quenta Silmarillion, because I think I'm going to have a similar question. What does Tolkien think he's doing here? Like, what exactly is going on? So um, I had suggested you could get a start on that, and I still think that's true. Now, I'm going to invite you to read a goodly ways ahead um, in pages, only because... There's a whole bunch of maps and map commentary, which we're probably not going to talk about in very great... There might be some things that will come up there, but we're not going to talk about them in very great detail. So um, go ahead and read up through chapter 13 of the Quintus Silmarillion. Uh, so up to, but not including, of the coming of men into the West. Right? So um, up through and including of Bulgarian and its realms, basically. Um, so stop when you get to chapter 14 of The Coming of Men into the West, uh, which is on page 215 of my hardcover version here. Okay? That'll be the plan for next week, and we'll see how we do.
Um, all right. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Uh, and uh, I will see you guys next week. Bye now.